when I'm reading briefs and reading cases, I'm not looking at paper, I'm looking at people. You know, even if I don't see them, I recognize that every case involves real people in real lives, the lawyers' lives, the clients' lives, their families, um, and I don't take that lightly. Hello and welcome to See You in Court, the podcast that informs you about the Georgia civil justice system, what it means to you, and how it protects individual rights. This podcast is a collaboration between the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation and the Georgia Institute of Technology. Your hosts are Robin Frazier-Clark and Lester Tate, who are both past presidents of the State Bar of Georgia and currently serve on the board of directors of the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation. And now this episode of See You in Court. Good morning, friends and lovers of the law, and welcome to See You in Court. I am Robin Fraser-Clark, and with us here today is our co-host, as usual, Lester Tate. And today we're going to be talking about the Georgia Court of Appeals and appellate law, what that is and what it means. And to help us understand it all, we are thrilled to have the presiding judge of the Georgia Court of Appeals, the Honorable Stephen Dillard, with us today. Lester, first I'll say good morning to you, and actually we're, t- we're taping this in the afternoon, so good afternoon to you. Good afternoon. It's great to be back here and to have uh, Judge Dillard uh, there. And uh, unlike uh, usual situations where he's been doing these Zoom arguments and he gets to ask the lawyers questions, we get to ask him questions today. Right. So that, that should be lots of fun. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've been uh, really looking forward to this. <laughs> um, we've got some good thoughts to share with Judge Dillard and we want to hear what he has to say. He's um, pretty well known in the um, the Zoom world, YouTube, the social media world. So. Um, let me let me tell our, tell our listeners about Judge Dillard uh, and his really impressive career. Presiding Judge Stephen Lewis A. Dillard was appointed as the 73rd judge of the Court of Appeals of Georgia on November 1, 2010, by the Governor Sonny Perdue. Prior to his appointment, Judge Dillard was in private practice with James Bates, Pope and Spivey in Macon, serving as chairman of the firm's appellate practice group. Judge Dillard was elected and re-elected by his fellow Georgians in 2012 and in 2018. On July 1, 2017, Judge Dillard was sworn in as the 30th Chief Judge of the Court of Appeals of Georgia for a two-year term that ended on June 30, 2019. He currently serves as the presiding judge of the court's fourth division. Judge Dillard graduated from Samford University with a BA in 1992 and the Mississippi College School of Law with J.D. Cum Laude in 1996. In college, Judge Dillard was a member of the Sigma Chi fraternity, and in 2021, Judge Dillard was given the significant SIG award by the Sigma Chi fraternity, one of its highest honors, which recognizes those alumni members whose exemplary achievements in their fields of endeavor have brought great honor and prestige to the name of Sigma Chi. He is a member of the Speakers Bureau of the Federalist Society for Law and Public Policy Studies, the Lawyers Club of Atlanta, and the St. Thomas More Society. He is currently serving as a member of the Samford University Alumni Association's Executive Council and the Samford Athletic Director's Cabinet. He serves as the special consultant to the Georgia High School Mock Trial Committee. 
In 2019, Judge Diller began co-teaching Georgia appellate practice at Mercer University's law school and joined the National Advisory Board for the Constitutional Sources Project, an organization dedicated to increasing access to and understanding of the United States Constitution and its history and creation. He was also named that year as the Twitter Laureate of Georgia by the Georgia House of Representatives, as one of Atlanta's 500 most powerful leaders by Atlanta Magazine, and as best social mediator by the Fulton County Daily Report. Judge Dillard is married to Kristen McDaniel Dillard, and they have three children. He is an active parishioner of St. Joseph Catholic Church and the former president of the school board for St. Joseph's Catholic School. Wow. Judge Dillard, welcome to the show. It's my honor to be with y'all. Always good to be with friends. Well, we appreciate it and glad to, and it's, it's also, we're doing this by Zoom and it's also good to see you, even if only by Zoom, because it's been a long time since uh, we've seen you. Absolutely. Good to see y'all. Well, the first thing I had on my agenda to talk to you about was the, uh, that award of being named Twitter Laureate. Is that of, of all the awards you've received in your illustrious career, is that the, the highest one? You know, I'm, uh, you know how much I love Samford. I think the, the, the award that means the most to me is, is being named alumnus of the year uh, back in 2017 for Samford. That, you know, that's the highest honor the university gives an alum, uh, you know, an alumnus. And so that means a lot, but you know, I, I do, that was a, a huge, um, recognition, a significant recognition, uh, and a lot of my friends. And the thing that was nice about it is that it was, it was a bipartisan, um, <laughs> award. And, and, you know, I mean, you know, Matt Wilson, Matthew Wilson and, um, uh, gosh, I'll, I'll forget all the names and the people that were involved, but there were Republicans and Democrats. And, you know, I like to think it wasn't so much about me, maybe the type of social media presence that I try to encourage, um, which is which is one that um, promotes hopefully civility and um, education and mentoring and using social media for positive things. We, we hear a lot about the toxic aspects of social media, but I don't think we talk enough about the positive aspects of social media. And, you know, the things that I've been able to do and the, the young lawyers and law students and people that I've been able to mentor over the past decade, I've now I've been on Twitter for a while now. Um, that to me is the most rewarding aspect of this. And I just got a, uh, um, uh, in the mail today, a, uh, a very nice card from a judge on the Indiana Court of Appeals who had read an article that I recently wrote with the chief justice of the Supreme Court of Michigan, Bridget McCormick, who's a good, dear friend of mine. Um, and we co-authored that article. And he said, you know, I read this. I really enjoyed it. I had stopped participating on social media, but I think I'm going to give it another try. And I thought that, you know, that's nice to know that the, that, that the, the things you say and the things you write, the people consider those um, points of view and, um, you know, are willing to give things a shot because I, I think it is important for judges to be engaged with the people they serve. And I think the best way to do that realistically is through social media, social media platforms. So you, uh, as I recall, you're uh, 
uh, social media presence dates back. Uh, I, I don't know if it was before Twitter, but didn't you run a blog when you were in private practice uh, for a while? I mean, you you've been doing this for for quite some time. I, I participated in in numerous blogs. I did have one that I did that you know ranged from everything to politics to college football to thing to uh, a topic near and dear to to both of your hearts, uh, bourbon you know, debating kind of the best bourbons, um, you know, that's, that seems like a whole lifetime ago now, but, um, yeah, I mean, there were, I was a contributor to several other things and, you know, I, so I think social media for me, when I became a judge, it was an, it was natural, but it also, I had to rethink, you know, I couldn't engage in the way you, you, you have to be, um, very careful, um, you know, I, I know that y'all both know this as former bar presidents that you, you have both been leaders in, uh, in fighting for a, a fair, independent, nonpartisan judiciary. And when I became a judge, I took that responsibility to uh, to be a, uh, you know, to leave any political past I had behind and to fully embrace the nonpartisan nature of the office. And that's I, I would hope that people have viewed, you know, that have viewed my presence as a judge on social media platforms. Um, they see someone that that tries to stay as far as, away as possible from partisan politics and discuss things like professionalism and law nerd things like brief writing and oral argument tips. Well, and- I, I was going to ask you about that because there's a whole lot, and, and you you kind of stole my thunder a little bit because I was going to say, you know, appellate lawyers are always on. Uh, there's a sort of subculture of appellate lawyers and judges on Twitter. And, uh, you know, they're always talking about fonts and trial lawyers like me and Robin, we're always talking about bourbon or, or, or uh, you know, something like that. Yeah. Um, and, and, I, and, you know, there is, you know, for folks that don't know, I think, uh, you know, while uh, Robin and I have argued a large number of appeals and I'm sure you tried a lot of cases and, you know, private practice, but, you know, there's sort of different cultures around different aspects of it. And it seems like uh, this appellate Twitter uh, handle or hashtag has sort of uh, uh, captured uh, it, uh, its own little subculture. I, th- I think that's right. Although I do, I do want to say it's a big ten. I mean, we've got folks in there who aren't even lawyers who participate in debates. You know, people who just really follow some of the topics um, that that are on appellate Twitter, and I. I like appellate Twitter. I like law uh, Twitter. I like trial lawyer Twitter. Um, you know, I, I, I think it's interesting. Um, one of the great things that I think has really transformed me in many ways, you know, one of the, the downsides of social media is, is that there's that immediacy to it. And, you know, a lot of us, um, I, I think it's not just, you know, not just a few people, but a lot of people, there's that, that kind of, immediate gratification of putting something out there or responding when something happens and, you know, getting feedback. Sometimes even if it's negative, just kind of engaging and battling. And, you know, the one thing being a judge has done for me is it's forced me to listen a lot more. Um, And because of the nonpartisan nature of my office and because of the type of content I try to put on social media. In some ways, I think it's my my timeline has become what I hope is an oasis from some of the toxic political debates of the day where we can nerd out over fonts, 
uh, or we can talk about our love for M dashes or semicolons, or we can talk about music or football. Now I can get passionate with football, but um, you know, I, I think it's, it's, it's a good, I, I think there can be communities as you pointed out, Lester, that are built and, and, and there's mentoring that goes on there. There are referrals that go on there. It really is, you know, I say judges ought to be on social media. I think lawyers, uh, it's good for lawyers to be on social media as well. I mean, you, there, if, if you use it correctly, um, I, I think it could be a very positive thing. But for me, it forced me to listen a lot more, which is something I needed to do. And uh, because I've been forced to listen and because I can't comment on the news of the day, I think I've grown as a person because I've I, I because I'm listening now and not commenting right away. I'm hearing viewpoints that I maybe didn't hear as much or didn't hear um, as as thoughtfully before because I really wasn't listening. But that's that's something that I've really benefited from from social media. Is my timeline has, you know, if, if you can imagine the farthest you know end of the left end of the spectrum and the farthest end of the right end of the spectrum. All people follow me all along that, you know, that spectrum. And, uh, you know, I, I like that. I think that's so. Why, why, why do you why do you think that? Because I, I'll just tell you, like, and I, I don't Robin's on Twitter. I'm on Twitter. Uh, but I hadn't seen a lot of trial lawyer Twitter. You know, it just doesn't seem to have that following. What is it you think is sort of special about appellate lawyers and judges that have have grown that subculture the way it is? I, I just think we're nerds. I mean, I, I think it's, you know, we're just nerds and we like talking about nerdy things. And, and um, you know, we, we have very few people in our lives that want to talk about M dashes or semicolons or, you know, uh, different aspects of brief writing and, you know, topic sentences, transition words. I mean, you know, and then when you find a group uh, you know, that really immerses, um, you know, the collective members, we all immerse ourselves in research and writing. Um, you know, it's nice to have sounding boards and, and to learn. I learn new things from judges and lawyers all the time. Um, you know, you've got Brian Garner, Ross Gruberman, Gruberman. I mean, you've got all these legal writing experts who are on there. Uh, I've got like Oren Kerr, who's one of the you know most prominent Fourth Amendment scholars in the United States, and I can follow him. And I learn. I mean, I have cited his stuff in some of my opinions. So it's really, like I said, if you do it the right way, I think social media can really be a positive force. It can be. There's a downside too, and and I've experienced some of that as well. Just just in the sense that I think the bigger your account gets the more you bring in people that really aren't interested in kind of engaging in good faith dialogue. They're just there to kind of, you know, be snarky or say something mean. And, you know, that if you're a public figure, you just got to let that roll off your back. You know, I've heard you judge Diller talk in other um, places that uh, social media helps you as a judge who has to uh, be held accountable by the citizens of Georgia, because you have to run for election. There are some states where judges do not run for election. Georgia is one that where our judges do run. And as I noted in your introduction, you've run for reelection twice. So tell us a little bit about how you use social media to reach out to basically Georgia constituents. You know, I, I think 
you know, the first thing I'll say is, you know, I, I, I hear I've, I've often heard it from journalists and others and citizens that we don't know enough about our court system. We don't know enough about how courts work. And so I've used some traditional means to talk about the day to day work of the Court of Appeals. Um, in addition to writing my opinions, I've written not one, but two law review articles on the inner workings and cultures of the Court of Appeals. Um, that are published in Mercer's Law Review. And I did that for, um, you know, primarily lawyers and, and, and trial court judges and even some folks on the Supreme Court. Um, but, but, but also, you know, if anybody calls my office, I'm happy to email it to them for free. Um, but I wanted to do that because I, I think, you know, before I joined the court, a lot of how we operated, to me at least, as a practitioner was shrouded in mystery. And I just didn't think that I don't know that that was intentional, but it just struck me as not being right. I mean, we're public servants. We're not black robe philosophers. We serve the people. And I felt like it was important for lawyers and, and trial judges and everyone else. Anybody who wanted to know about not, not specifics about cases, but just how a, an appeal works its way through the appellate uh, process at the Court of Appeals. And so, I, you know, that's one way I did it. I, I've, sh I've shared that article many times um, uh, and I'll probably share it again recently as we're finishing up distress, our distress period here. We can talk more about that later. But, um, you know, I, I, I give uh, I've done town halls, kind of, you know, Q&A's where people can ask me questions about oral argument or brief writing. Once again, I can't talk about specific cases, but, you know, and look, is everyone interested in this stuff? No, probably not. But to me, what's important is that the more I do things like this, these things are out there on, you know, in, in the, on the internet. And we now have live streaming of oral arguments, which we didn't have for a while. That was kind of my baby. Um, obviously my colleagues, I'm very thankful for them for agreeing, but it took me about five or six years to convince as we had some turnover to convince my colleagues to, to live stream. I'm very proud of that, that we were able to do that even before we moved into the new building. Once again, it, or do we have thousands of people watching our court of appeals? Um, you know, our oral arguments? No, but the thing is they're there. They're there. And not only can people watch them live, we've got archived oral arguments going back to when we started in September of 2016. I just believe with, with everything I have at my core, that we are public servants, that we serve the people, that we should be transparent in how we operate, that we ought to educate the public about what we do as much as possible. And, and, in addition to all that, talking about things about, you know, intricacies of appellate, our Georgia appellate system, I think it's not a bad thing for people to recognize that underneath that robe is a human being. I'm a father. I'm a husband. You know, I'm a, a proud Sanford graduate. I'm, I'm a, a person of faith. Um, and while those things don't drive my decision making, they do often drive how I explain things and opinions, how I write my voice. And so I think, you know, to me, I, I want Georgians to have access to that information. If they choose not to use it or they choose not to follow me on social media, that's fine. But I want to feel like I've done everything I can to not say, it's not so much about me. It's really about the court system, but to the extent they want to know about me, you know, I'm, you know, you guys are friends with me. You've seen my, my Twitter feed. It's pretty much who I am. I don't you know. Obviously you put your best foot forward. And I mean, I have my, my faults just like anybody else, but I, I think my social media presence is a pretty accurate reflection of who I am as a person. So Dr. Dillard, you mentioned um, 
the uh, taping of oral arguments that we can now watch. Actually, we can watch your oral arguments in the Court of Appeals live. And then they are um, on the Georgia Court of Appeals website, which I think is gaappeals.us. Is that is that right? Um, and I can remember because I've been around a little while, um, not quite as long as Lester, but maybe a little bit longer than Judge Dillard. <laughs> but I remember when you couldn't do that. And, and I advocated for put it, putting them online. Um, so that the folks in Savannah or Valdosta who wanted to right. watch an oral argument didn't have to drive four hours uh, right. to come and watch for 30 minutes. So um, and, and I'm going to give credit to you because the Georgia Court of Appeals started doing that way before COVID. COVID really didn't have anything to do with it. 2016 is when we started it. Yeah. And it took longer than it should, in my view. But, you know, um, things happen incrementally. And that was the fight that I had to. And, you know, I don't want to say it was all me because, you know, I, I had, um, you know, a then Chief Judge Doyle. I did this when I was vice chief. She was supportive of me. She wasn't crazy about it, I don't think. But she she understood where I was coming from. And, and I think my colleagues did, too. Now nobody questions it. Now mm -hmm. it's everybody's like, well, of course we have live streaming of oral arguments. But yeah. um, it was tricky with the timing of the building. And I had to go across the street um, um, and kind of argue to the legislators even though we know we're getting a new building, it's worth the money for the next three or four years for us to do this. You know, what, what would you, is it worth $80,000, $100,000 for four years for people to have access to their court of appeals? And, and they agreed with me. I, and I appreciate the, the, our, our legislators um, and we, especially some of our lawyer legislators who, you know, championed that it wasn't a lot of money, but um, you know, it's it, it's one of these small things that I think has had a has had a big impact, especially for lawyers um, yeah. who don't live in Atlanta. And as a, someone who practiced outside of Atlanta, I kind of came to the court with the heart of a non-Atlanta practitioner. Not that the Atlanta lawyers are awesome, but but <laughs> but but they have you know. You, you did, I think, prior to a lot of this technology, you did feel like sometimes you were at a disadvantage or you had to work harder um, be, because of the distance from from Atlanta. Well, yeah, it, it is it, it is more. Uh, I mean, you know, to me, watching watching an appellate argument is more informative and more interesting than like watching a legislative session, because there's just a lot of sort of downtime and bill reading and you know, uh, uh, you know, now they have, you know, him singing and pledging and all this other stuff going on, you know, but you know, if you want to see how the government works, like what it is, you, you, you've got, you get 20 good minutes, you know, uh, watching, watching an appellate argument, but the, the one place and I'm going to, I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit here, but you know, sure. one, one place that, uh, we still don't have that is the United States Supreme court. Right. And uh, I saw the other day where the, the I think the Senate Judiciary Committee marked up a bill to mandate, you know, televising oral arguments in the Supreme Court. How do you and appellate Twitter uh, feel about that? Well, I can only speak for myself that, you know, I don't talk about politics, but this is probably the furthest I've gone out on the ledge. And I have I've said a few times on Twitter that my hope is that I have encouraged the Supreme Court justices to allow live streaming. Um, you know, I, I like to say judges are different, but we're not special. And there's that's the only area of our government, and it is the highest level 
of, of what we do, certainly as to federal law. And I just think the arguments against live streaming, you know, that they'll be taken out of context. They're already taken out of context, taken out of context, even when they don't have video. You know, you're a public official. Um, you just have to, to live with that. Uh, I, I think the educational benefits and the civic benefits of, of allowing those arguments in real time and allowing us to see the practitioners and the justices, I just think that's invaluable. And I, I don't think there's a very compelling case for not allowing it. I will say, and, and maybe this is the institutionalist in me, and so I may be biased in this respect, I do not like Congress forcing the Supreme Court to do it. I think they can incentivize it. I would rather the Supreme Court come to this conclusion on its own. I, I, I think sometimes when legislators interfere with how courts operate, in this case, it may seem like a good idea, but then the question is how much do we let them, you know, I do think there is something to be said from, from kind of a separation of power standpoint to let courts decide how they're going to operate. Now, maybe there's an occasion here, the public interest is great enough, but I, I won't go as far as to say I support Congress forcing them to do it. I encourage my fellow jurists on our highest court to do the right thing and to allow live streaming of their arguments. I think the benefits of it are just tremendous, would be tremendous for civic engagement, civic education, and transparency. Once again, um, a lot of what they do is shrouded in mystery. And I, I, I don't like that. I don't think the law, uh, the law belongs to the people. I don't think it should be mysterious. I think it, it ought to be accessible to the people. I totally agree. And, and now during COVID, they are doing real-time telephone or audio only uh, hearings. And um, it would be so much more compelling if we could see the folks argue as as they do it. So maybe they're just taking baby steps and they'll they'll get maybe. there. I, I'd heard one excuse for not doing it is they were afraid the lawyers would grandstand on camera. And from all the oral arguments I've seen in your court, that just simply does not happen. Do you agree? I agree. And I think most of the arguments at that court are by very skilled specialists lawyers and the idea that Paul Clement or, you know, any of these frequent um, SCOTUS advocates are going to grant. I just I don't buy it. I don't. I don't. And even if it happens, um, I, I'm confident in the ability of the chief justice to tamp that down yeah. if necessary. Yeah. Now, um, Judge Dillard, we've often heard uh, that your court Georgia Court of Appeals is the busiest appellate court in America. Uh, Judge Ellington, when he was on your court, he's now on the Supreme Court, but he used to always go around when he would talk and give give talks and, and speeches that it was the busiest court. Is that still true? I don't know that. The, I mean, I, it, it's hard even when, you know, certainly when we were 12 judges, I think if we weren't the busiest, we were so close that us making that claim uh, was not a stretch at all. Um, I think now with 15 judges, we are still, I mean, I've, I've heard comparisons like to Ohio and Louisiana where we roughly have the same um, caseload, but they've got 60, you know, or 50 judges and we've got 15. So even at 15, 
Um, you know, we, we are, um, you know, we're doing a lot. Georgia's getting a lot of bang for its buck with its state intermediate appellate court. I don't know that we're the busiest, but we, I, I would put us well within the top. Um, I would say we're well within the top 5%. I would not, I still think we are an extraordinary, I mean, we are a small, when you think about the fact that we are what I would call, you know how you talk about a strong mayoral system? We are a strong intermediate appellate court. We are unified in jo- geography. So unlike Florida, our, our intermediate appellate court is not divided up or Illinois divided up in divisions. We are unified in subject matter. Unlike Alabama, we don't have a criminal intermediate appellate court and a civil appellate court. Um, And so, you know, and and we are the final say in about 85% of all appeals. And even, you know, and the the thing is when we had the, the, the law in, in 2015, 2016, where we did the appellate jurisdiction reform act, where we shifted cases that had traditionally jumped us and gone to the Supreme court, like divorce, title to land, will contest, equity kind of mandamus cases like that, those all got shifted down to us. We actually became that that made us even more of the court of last resort and made the Supreme Court more of a a certiorari court um, or certiorari, however you want to pronounce it. Um, But I I think, you know, that's the thing. I mean, the, uh, the court of appeals both courts are extremely important. The Supreme Court of Georgia is, is is extremely busy, even with the nine justices since they've expanded. But but in terms of like the impact on the 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 average citizen in Georgia, um, you know, we we have a far, in my view, uh, have a far greater impact just simply because of the number of cases where we are effectively the court of last resort. Eighty five percent of all appeals. In, in state appeals in Georgia end at the Court of Appeals. So, so. Well, especially, especially when you took on the divorce, um, the divorce yeah. cases, you have jurisdiction over those that I, I assume that really increased your caseload. It did. I mean, it, it's 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 interesting. It did in some respects, but in other areas, things leveled off a little bit. So, um, you know, we're busy. When I got on the court, we weren't just busy. It was insane. Um, you know, I would uh, the, the, the comparison I would make is the Supreme Court of the United States takes about 79 cases a year, 80 cases a year. I had one. We have our distress deadlines. We have these three deadlines every year that we have to meet those deadlines. We got one coming up this Friday. We have to get our cases out of there affirmed as a matter of law. That's under the Georgia Constitution. My first Jan term, which is now called the winter term, um, I had 70, r- roughly 72, 73 cases that had to go out the door in three and a half months. I mean, that's just me that I had to write. Then I had to review about that many from the two other members on my panel that had to review motions and orders and whole court cases. And back then what were backup panel cases? I mean, it was just, I mean, it was insane. You were triaging constantly and that was no way to run a railroad. And that's why when we did the Appellate Jurisdiction Reform Act and we gave the authority to decide how we decided cases, took it away from the legislature and gave it back to the Court of Appeals. We reformed our system. And now we do have cases that go down to the wire, but it's it's much more manageable now than it used to be. And with the expansion of the court from 12 to 15, that spread the caseload out. So we're still busy. I don't want anyone to come away from this conversation, but there's a difference between being busy 
and just not having enough time to really write the kind of opinions that provide clarity and thoughtfulness to the body of case law in Georgia. Now I think we're in a position to do that. And it was hard. You, you could do it. And I did my best to do it while we were under the old system. But, you know, I was working and I still do, but, but really, really working a lot more hours than I did in private practice. I worked every Saturday and Sunday. Um, now I still work on the weekends, but it's not, it's not insane like it used to be. So in comparing the Georgia Court of Appeals to Court of Appeals, other places. By the way, we mentioned my friend John Ellington. I just want to say I, I never said that John left the Court of Appeals and went to the Supreme Court and improved the average IQ of both places. I just want, I just want to be be clear about that. Um, but uh, but I, you know, I went I went to law school at uh, at the University of South Carolina, and I think the first time I ever actually went to an appellate court, it was to the South Carolina Court of Appeals. At the time, there was a, a, a renowned lawyer, former president of the College of Charleston, now uh, chief judge named Alex Sanders, and he became the chief judge. He was the first chief judge in about, I think, 1980 or so. And uh, one of their traditions was that uh, after they heard an oral argument, they get up, they leave the bench, they go into a uh, room, sort of like a jury room, you know, off the thing. And they sort of take a preliminary vote and they yeah. briefly discuss the case. Then they come back and hear the next one. Uh, if I understand the Georgia Court of Appeals uh, procedure correctly, that's not part of it. And in fact, there's not really a uh, a time to uh, where all the judges deciding it are necessarily advocating it advocating their position orally to one another. Is that true? And uh, how do you feel about that, that, that sort of difference? I think it's less true today than it was when I joined the court. A lot of, um, you know, uh, there, there would be some discussion, although some judges, when we got off the bench, you know, in my early years, they used to want to talk about it. Their views were, I'll sit, I'll submit the case when I submit the case. Uh, when I became a presiding judge, I was like, well, this is my division as the presiding judge. I get to kind of decide how to do this. I, we didn't do we don't do formal conferencing. Um, you know, a lot of our cases aren't. Con I mean, a lot of them are not controversial. They're they're fairly you know, they're they're important appeals, but they're fairly routine. And the outcome is is uh, fairly obvious. And so in those cases, I don't know that sitting around in a room because we do have to manage our time wisely at the court of appeals. I don't know that just kind of going through, you know, every one of those and describing them and, and then kind of, you know, when the, the outcomes obvious, but when we have oral argument cases, what we do, um, and obviously it's had to change a little bit with the pandemic. And so we wait till the recording's not going and then we really make sure that it's not going out to the public. And then we'll stay on zoom right now and, and confer. We usually have a, a kind of post oral argument. We don't do it after each argument, but we will do it after all of them are over. And then the judge that is assigned to that case We'll usually say, here's kind of my thoughts on this case. What do y'all think? And it's 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 a little less formal, I think, than the South Carolina, what you're talking about, or certainly the type of process that went on at the Seventh Circuit where I clerked with my my judge, Judge Mannion. Um, but there is conferencing that goes on. And there are 
there are uh, considerable um, discussions that go on too, both with regard to oral argument and non-oral argument cases throughout the term. Um, you know, I, I'm on a panel right now with Mandy Mercier and Verda Colvin, and we have had numerous conversations throughout the term about cases. You know, sometimes it's in person. Some, a lot of times it's been by phone. Um, sometimes it's by email, but we are in constant uh, communications about our cases. So there is conferencing that goes on. I think it may be just as a little less formal. And some of that just may be because of the nature of the, the caseload, finding a day where we all just kind of sit down formally. I think this is how we've we've done it. But I will say in the, in the past, when I got to the court, there was a lot of memos that would go back and forth. The problem with memos, in my experience, is you can't always, when you're doing those things quickly, you can't, you can't always do a good job of controlling the tone. And sometimes something that you don't intend to be snarky or curt can come across that way in a memo. Whereas if I come to your office and sit down with you, Lester, and you're on my panel, you're, let's, let's say you're on the Court of Appeal, you're Robin or on a panel with me at the Court of Appeals, if, if I you know, say, hey, let's all go out to lunch or, hey, I'll bring lunch in. And we've done that sometimes. Or if I come to your office, Lester, and I say, hey, here's the issue I have with the opinion you wrote. That's that's going to be taken differently than me writing you a memo where I really may not have time to kind of think about or an email where I may not have time to think about tone or, or the time to make it sound better. If that makes sense. I think it does. And it could be read like a tweet uh, when you're sending a memo around. You don't you don't control the tone all the right. time. Judge Dillard, you've mentioned a couple of times this um, mysterious thing called distress. Yeah. And I, be yeah. I believe you're referring to a period of time, and I actually don't know, is it long or a certain period, n number of it's days? One like, month. Before all opinions within two terms of court, the last two terms of court have to be issued. Is that, did I get that right? That's correct. And, and we really do what's called an artificial deadline because we have to build in 10 days for motions for reconsideration. So, I mean, I think technically the end of term for the Court of Appeals for what is called the December or winter term that we're in right now, all the cases must be out Friday. But the real deadline is like a little bit before the middle of the month because we build in that motion for reconsideration period. But we're in distress right now. So we started when we got 30 days out from this Friday, you know, the minute things start going around, they're labeled, you know, granted in emails, this is a distress case. You know, we put that in the in the kind of the subject matter line of the email to let people know I'm not sending you a case for next term. This is one. So, you know, as the judge, you need to prioritize it. And that that is a Georgia Constitution mandate. Is that correct? That's correct. It is the two term rule in the Georgia Constitution. It means that um, we have to get cases out two terms from the date of docketing. And we have three deadlines a year. Uh, one is uh, this one, which is kind of the end of June, early July. The next one will be uh, end of October, early November. And then the, the one after that is middle of March. And they're all roughly four months. This one's three and a half. This next one's like four. And I think the one or four and a half. And the one after that's like four months. Yeah. So to a lay person who would hear that you have a period of time called distress, that you're getting out these opinions, distress 
I understand that's what the judges use to describe that period because you're you're under the gun, basically. But um, I, I'm wondering if lay people have a lot of confidence and opinions issued during distress that that gives me a little I'm a little worried about that. Well, I mean, you know, the one the efficiency has its consequences, right? I mean, uh, we love the two-term rule because it requires us to get cases out. You know that if you are in the state of Georgia and you are a citizen or you are a lawyer, uh, or you should, you know, I'm telling you now, you, you will have your decision um, most likely um, at the outer end in about eight, eight and a half, I mean, usually about eight months at the max, probably before that. So that's a, you know, that sounds like a lot of time to folks, but when you consider there are appellate courts where appeals have been languishing for five years, uh, now that's extreme, but it happens. Um, it, it's a pretty great rule. One of the reasons we reformed the court is so that we we would really be able uh, to put judges in a better position to finish their work on time. So it could be that the case that comes out on the final day of distress was actually circulated and we have one that came out today that actually circulated a month ago. But if it's a whole court case with 15 judges, it may take a month to go through 15 judges because a lot of judges like to write and they want to you know, put their own stamp on the case or a concurrence or a dissent. Or it could be a three judge decision where um, one judge held it for a long time because they wanted to think about it. So it's not always the case that, a, that an opinion that comes out um, toward the end or during the, that 30 day window of the distress period, especially toward the end. It's not always the case that that case was rushed, but sometimes it is. And that's why I tell people, you know, if you get an opinion and maybe it's not as in depth as you would like, or you think there's problems with it, you know, I would say it's always difficult to get an, an MFR granted at the court of appeals, but your best chance is probably during um, you know, with cases that, that fall within that last couple of weeks, because not all of them are going to be that way, but some of them, it just may be that you got the opinion late and you just, you know, I don't care how smart you are. This is the same for lawyers. Um, if you, if you, if Robin, if you give an assignment to an associate and you say, I want this brief and we've got to file it in 30 days and they give it to you on the 29th day. Now you're very smart and you're an excellent writer. But if you and you're not going to let this happen, but let's just say hypothetically it did happen. You've only got a day to really think deeply about that brief and to go look at the research and do all that. You're going to do your best work and you may pull an all nighter to get it done and get it filed. But no matter how smart you are, there's something to be said for letting things marinate and, and putting things to the side. And so if you're a judge and you're not writing the opinion and I get it with hours to go, there's only so much I can do with that um, because I've got to meet that deadline. So there are, I think we've gotten better. Uh, there were some times early on in my career at the Court of Appeals where I was getting things literally one or two hours before they're going out the door. And I, I hadn't, I, you know, back then we had paper records. So you might be able to read the briefs, but you didn't get to see the record until it came to your office. I mean, it was, a, it was not a good system. And so I'm glad we've reformed it. I think things are a lot better now. I think lawyers and citizens should have a lot more confidence in this new system, the way we've designed it. But it's still the case that human nature is such that the hardest cases often get pushed toward the end. And maybe those are the ones that are more ripe for reconsideration. 
So that's that's what I would say. Um, I think everybody, all my colleagues do the best we can. But sometimes, you know, you get that one case that's got 50 boxes and you've got 40 other cases to get out the door in, in a four month period. That once again, efficiency has its price and the two term rule is wonderful, but there are some downsides to it. And I think our judges, all of our judges at the Court of Appeals are doing the best they can to do the best work they can under the timeline. So, you know, um, I, I was thinking, too, when you were talking about distress, you know, for a trial lawyer, that sounds like the week before you start the trial, you know, right. which is uh, sometimes sort of the beginning of the appeal too. But, right. uh, but how do you, you know, how do you, how do you decide an appellate case? Um, you, you know, uh, do you go uh, read the, the, the briefs first? Do you get the order first? Do you read the record and then go, you know, kind of form your own opinion about it? Or uh, how, how do you do that? And in particular, uh, and, and I know there are different standards of review uh, for different cases, right. uh, abuse of discretion and, right. uh, you know, uh, against the weight of the evidence or whatever else. So I'm not really asking this question in a real technical legal sense. Sure. But do you do you start sort of from a general presumption that the judge knew he or she knew what they were doing, you know, below? You know, I think. um you know, I, I don't know that I start with that presumption. Um, I start with the presumption that standard of review matters greatly. Uh, you know, for me, um, one of the things I try to do in every case is, is, is apply the same approach to every case, regardless of who's involved, regardless of what kind of case it is. And, you know, appellate courts, you know, really do two things. And I'm, I'm talking at a very general level to appellate court to me, justice, because we're going to talk about justice in a little bit. I know that I've, I've been warned. We're going to talk a little bit about justice in general. But to me, justice it, 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 in ideal circumstances happens at the trial court level. Appellate courts to me should be backstops. We, we are we are there to ensure not that everyone gets a perfect trial, but that everyone gets a fair trial. So we're a backstop in a sense for uh, things that go on at the trial level uh, on a statewide basis. Um, we're also there to be kind of guardians of the case law to make sure that we're providing case law that is instructive, that's clear, um, that gives guidance to the bench and bar and to the people in terms of how they can and businesses in terms of how they can, you know, um, just live their lives and, and go about. Um, you know, whatever they want to do with their lives. And so that that's that's kind of what we do. So when I'm looking at an appeal, uh, my process, interestingly, kind of, you know, I don't know if this is just the nature of how I operate. The standard review is obviously a big thing. Obviously, you know, I, I read the briefs. In some cases, I'll, I'll look up the record because it's all online now. And I may start with the order, but it, it just kind of varies. Sometimes I start with the reply brief. I don't know. I I try to shake it up a little bit because I, I'm, I'm fearful of getting into patterns of doing the same thing in every appeal. And so sometimes I'll look at it. I'll try to get just flip through things and get a general sense. And then I'll be like, OK, 
I think maybe the reply briefs the place to start here. So I'll read the briefs. I'll read through the record. I'll usually at that point have a draft opinion from my staff attorneys. If, if it was a difficult case, I'll probably have had three or four or five or more conversations with the staff attorney as they were drafting the opinion. And then I take all of that. I open the doc, the, the word perfect document where I'm working on the opinion as I go. And sometimes I'll put notes in there for myself just to make sure I want to make sure we're addressing all the arguments uh, fairly and honestly. I don't, I don't like, you know, if you make seven arguments, you know, I may dispose of some of them in a footnote, but I like to kind of acknowledge all of the arguments in an opinion. Um, and then I, I just kind of go through the process of reading the cases, getting an understanding of the, of whether it's the statutory law at issue, whether it's precedent at issue. Um, and, and then just, I'm, I'm trying to go about it. And like I said, when I get it, um, you know, my, my staff attorneys know my general approach, but my charge to them is always our job is to get it right. Our job is to, is to be, a, is, is to, for me to be the judge, not to simply pick winners and losers and what I like. And that's how I go about it. I mean, I, I'm trying to apply neutral principles in every case, apply to the law to the facts and, and get to the right answer or the best of maybe a few plausible answers. And that, that process is, is sometimes it's not hard and sometimes it is difficult. And, you know, what I always tell the people, you know, that I talk to, whether lawyers, judges, or anyone else, um, I, I'm, I'm going to try to do the best I can in every case. I'm not always going to get it right, but, but I do want to be consistent in how I approach each case. Talk to us a little bit about um, when you're reviewing other judges, judges' opinions that you have to sign off on, yeah. how you decide to write either what's known as a concurrence or a dissent. And, and why, do you, why would judges do, why do judges write those things? You know, I think on a concurrence, it may very well be that I read, let's say, an opinion from, from uh, um, Judge Mercier, and I read her opinion and I think, you know, this is well written. Um, I think she's right on the law um, um, or I think she's right about part of the law. And I think the results right. But she doesn't discuss this. And to me, this is a stronger basis to rest the decision. It may be that she's right about what she, she's basing the reasoning on, but I would or maybe she's got two or three things and I would only rest it on one. Like I, I'm like, you don't need to reach. A and B, we can dispose of this case simply by relying on C. And I don't think we ought to be commenting on this dissent I write when I just think the not only the reasoning is problematic, but the outcome is is wrong. And uh, I've, 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 you know, interestingly, I think when I got on the bench, a lot of people would have been like, Diller's going to write dissents all the time. I've not written a ton of dissents. I've written a decent amount over, um, you know, 10 and a half years. But I'm, I, I would be surprised if I've written more than 15 or 20 dissents in 10 and a half years. I've written a lot of concurrences. Um, and I've written a lot of concurrences to Batante, which is a fancy Latin way of saying concurring fully but doubtfully. And sometimes I've done that where I felt like my hands were tied, that, that I couldn't reconsider the precedent, but that I thought it ought to be considered. You know, in other words, saying this is what the law is currently, but I don't think it should be. Uh, so I've done that a few times too. That's something that my friend 
uh, now retired Justice Blackwell, he kind of brought that back into fashion at the Court of Appeals. And I kind of took it and ran with it because I, I, I like it. I, I like being able to, to say, I'm going to go along with this. I'm going to follow it because I think it's the law. But I think and I think judges have an obligation to do that. You know, I, I, I think we ought to critically just because something is the law doesn't mean that it ought to be based on the law. In other words, not because I just don't like it personally, but because I've looked at the statute and I think we've just been misinterpreting it for a really long time. Um, but I'm bound by the Supreme Court precedent. I can write a concurrence and say Supreme Court says I have to rule this way, but I think they ought to reconsider it. And I think that's how we clean up the law through concurrences and dissents and things like that. One of my first dissents, Robin, was actually an 11 to one case where I lost uh, we only had 12 judges at the time. So I lost 11 to one. Even Blackwell didn't go with me. And the views of that dissent that I found early on in my career, a lot of that is now the majority view at the court. I, that's what I was going to ask you. I don't know if you keep stats, um, but I was wondering, have you ever seen a dissent? Maybe you're writing for the Supreme Court of Georgia saying this is the way it should be. It's not the way the law allows it, but this is the way it should be. Do you ever look to say, hey, they adopted they adopted my dissent. Oh, yeah. I, I keep score. I, I watch. I, I've, had I several, I've, I've had several dissents that have become unanimous Supreme Court opinions. You asked. I'm telling you. No, I, I wanted to know if you kept up with that. I, 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 let me ask this other question before Lester asked a question. But in the same vein, when you um, are reversed, do you keep up with that? I do. Keep I mean, reversal. I, Here's the thing. It's not so much keeping up with it as to, you know, go up and, you know, uh, you know, uh, harass my good friend Justice Boggs about it. Although I do do that every once in a while, many after everything's said and done. But no, I I uh, I, um, I, I think it's it's for a learning opportunity. If they reverse me, I, I, I typically will have conversations with my staff attorneys and sometimes we just come to the conclusion that, you know, sometimes the Supreme Court just wants to do something different. It had nothing to do with my, my opinion. Sometimes they think I just got it wrong and I respectfully disagree. Um, and but I, I do think those are learning opportunities for us to kind of critically examine, you know, is there something we missed? And occasionally it doesn't hasn't happened often in 10 and a half years, but occasionally they'll reverse me. I'm like, OK, I can see that. I can see where they're coming from. I don't know that I completely agree with it, but I, I see where they're coming from. And uh, um, sometimes it's just a, a difference of opinion and how to read a precedent. You know, I'll read one of their precedents and feel like I'm bound by it. That's normally where I get in trouble. Interestingly, it's when I follow an older Supreme Court precedent that I think I'm bound by, and then they write an opinion. And they're like, well, that's not really what it says. And I'm like, yeah, it kind of is. And they're like, no, that's, that's not what it, that's not what it says. So you didn't have to follow that precedent. That's, that's when I've gotten reversed. It's usually because I followed an older Supreme court opinion that I thought I was bound by. And they said I wasn't. So, so my question is, does oral argument really change anybody's mind? And um, I, I'm, I'm going to kind of go off the reservation here. You know, I, I watched, you know, the, we were talking about the U.S. Supreme Court, the, the U.K. Supreme Court, the British Supreme Court has uh, had cameras and they had uh, fascinating oral arguments over dis different aspects of Brexit, where uh, a barrister appearing there would uh, would have two hours for his presentation. Uh, 
uh, that he would make uh, would make there where I don't know of any appellate court in the United States that gives more than 30 minutes at the outside, you know, would be the would be the upper end. And uh, so, I mean, they, they clearly have a much more oral tradition uh, of advocacy maybe than we do here. But uh, I, I, I will confess and th- this was in my I've been doing this 35 years. So this would have been in my earlier years. But I confess to having gone down to the Court of Appeals or the Supreme Court from time to time and feeling I should have taken a mirror to sort of hold up and see if it fogged to see if the, the judges were breathing, you know, while they were sitting up there because there were no questions. There was no, uh, you know, it's it, it very conscious, I think, to folks like Robin and I who frequently try jury trials where you you kind of get a little feel, you know, for the people you're presenting your case to, you know, one way or another. Right. And I think that's, I, I think that aspect's changed too, by the way, uh, uh, recently with both the Georgia court of appeals and the Supreme court. But, uh, you know, d- 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 does oral argument really matter? I think it does. I think it matters. Uh, and I give some of these reasons in my Mercer article. There's three reasons why I think it matters. Number one, I think it matters for, for professionalism purposes. And one of the things I think we may have even amended our rules to say this is that, you know, even in a case that may be more routine, if, if you basically point out that you're going to give a young lawyer an opportunity to make their first appellate argument, we're more likely to grant those if you put that in your request. So I think it matters from a professionalism standpoint. Um, you know, I, I now that things are, are loaded is like that I'm granting more oral arguments than I have in the past, although I've probably always been more active in granting oral arguments. I think the other reason it matters um, once again, is for transparency purposes. I, I think holding oral arguments, especially when you live stream them, you know, not holding oral arguments is not really giving a window uh, into the judges and their approaches to the law and how they handle cases. And the only way you can really witness that publicly is through oral arguments. I think it matters. Now, as to your point, does it matter in terms of the decision making? Um, I, I think it can. They're, they're, um, one of the benefits of oral argument, the court of appeals, because we do have the two term rule. While I do spend a good bit of time preparing, I can't spend the amount of time that I did helping judge Mannion prepare for federal arguments because we don't have the army, the central staff army that they did um, because we're trying to get cases out for the current term. Oral argument is always next term. So it's a lifetime away. So I do prepare for oral argument carefully. I read the briefs. I read the relevant cases. I get the relevant, what I consider to be the relevant parts of the record. But the lawyer should always, whether it's in the state system or the federal system, always be more prepared than the judges. And so when when I come to oral argument, I, I have had cases where I went in, you know, kind of with an initial you know, this is how I think I'm leaning and had that go away. Now, most of the time, my gut reaction is the right one or how I come out, whether anyone else thinks it's right. It's how I come out in the case. But but here's the important thing. A good oral argument, and you guys know this because you're both very good at this. A good oral argument is where I walk away from that having uh, felt like I had a conversation with a knowledgeable lawyer about the facts and law of that case. And even if I rule against you, um, that conversation is going to help me in how I write that case. I go back and watch oral argument cases, whether I'm the author or whether I'm um, just simply a voting judge on that, 
because it, it it's amazing how much it refreshes my memory of that preparation process that I go through. So I think oral argument is is very useful, um, and and I think it's important um, to have that kind. Con- and it's a unique opportunity for the lawyer to really, if I'm heading down the wrong road to, to, uh, to kind of bring me back. And like I, I tell a lot of lawyers, there's losing and then there's losing. And sometimes it may be that you, 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 you lose at the court of appeals, but you lose in a way that makes for a better cert petition, if that makes sense. And so I think oral argument matters greatly. I don't think it's just for show. I think um, that part of it's important in terms of transparency and accessibility and kind of displaying that to the people of Georgia. But there are, I think, as a judge, my experience has been that I always benefit in some way. It might be smaller or bigger in a particular case. I always benefit from oral argument, almost always in some way. Um, losing is losing, no matter how you cut it, Judge. I'll just tell you. <laughs> and I've I've had my I've been on my share of the losing end, so I know what it's but if like. You losing makes for a better cert petition in a certain way. It's it's still um, <laughs> fair enough. <laughs> it it still is not fun. Um, let's talk a little bit about what you would call your judicial philosophy. Um, we hear. It's kind of hard to um, understand some things about jurists, uh, appellate jurists, but we hear things like strict constructionist, originalist, textualist, and there may have been there may have been a United States Supreme Court justice who you sort of um, write like or pattern pattern yourself after i don't know you may want to talk about that but if you in 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 the world of judicial philosophies where do you fall i i certainly well i would say i'm a judge first and foremost and i'm a judge you know i don't have any problems with saying that i'm an originalist and a textualist i don't know the problem with labels is that i don't think i think they've become so politicized that they don't accurately convey, like as far as originalism, there's very little originalism that I'm going to do at the Court of Appeals of Georgia. There's just not opportunities for that. I mean, I can, you know, it may matter in the sense of concurrences and dissents that I write um, on occasion, but that's really rare. The, 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 you know, for the people that are really kind of reading my opinions, I think textualism is, you know, I'm a textualist. I care about the, what the words of the laws or regulations or ordinances, what those mean. I don't speculate about what they might mean. I don't speculate about what I think would be a better law. Um, you know, uh, the, the, the political fortunes of the people under the gold dome. They come and go. Uh, you might have Republicans in control at some point. For many years, the Democrats were. If someone, if the legislature passes a law and it's signed in, into law by the governor, whatever it is, I'm going to try to faithfully interpret the words of that law and and apply it to the facts of a case. Uh, now, if that makes me conservative, then then so be it. I think it makes me a judge, which is why I think it's a little weird to say so-and-so is a liberal judge or so-and-so is a conservative judge, especially when in most cases, 
and Barnes and I, who might not always see eye to eye on everything, are probably going to vote with each other in 98% of all the cases. Now, how I write an opinion may differ from her, and the things I emphasize may differ from her. But um, we're going to agree on most on most cases and, and most outcomes. For me, put the labels aside. I think what you have to ask yourself is what kind of person do you want as a judge? Do you want someone that's going to say, this is how I think the case ought to come out and reason backwards? Or do you, are you, do you want to judge this that is trying to put their personal policy preferences aside and look at the law using neutral principles or param neutral parameters to operate within and say, here's what I think the answers are. And I'm not saying there's always one right answer in every case. In a lot of cases, there is one right answer. In some cases, there's maybe a spectrum of right answers and some are better than others because the law is not always going to be clear. But to me, the question is, what is that judge attempting to do when he or she decides a case? And for me, I'm engaging in problem solving. That's what I, I'm trying to figure out what the law is using tools, whether it's the rules of statutory construction, whether it's analyzing precedent that may not always be clear. Um, I'm going to try and engaging in what I like to call judicial restraint and not jumping out in front of the law or infringing on territory that probably more rightfully belongs to the Supreme Court of Georgia and respecting their role in the Georgia judicial system and having judicial modesty. And so all of those things, it's it's not when you start saying originalists and textualists and, and all this or or, you know, living constitutionalist or strict constructions, which I am not, by the way, I don't believe words should be strictly construed. I think words ought to be reasonably and fairly construed. And even Justice Scalia rejected the term strict constructionist. So for me, whatever the labels are, to me, it's about being a judge. And it is about being someone who is trying to faithfully interpret the law written and enacted by the people's representatives. That's my job. As so I so I, I want to touch on something you you said there, and uh, uh, you know, at my office, uh, we 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 have what we call Lester's Law, and uh, that's when in court, if you're explaining, you're losing. Uh, and and I I think one of the things that you talked about is, uh, do, you know, do judge judges that go to the end and say, I want this case to come out this way. And how am I going to get it to come out that way? And as, as a trial lawyer, I just sort of detest that, you know. And one of the ways that I feel like I see that happening, and there, there, there are a lot of nameless judges that I could name that, you know, I feel maybe engage in that practice. But one of the things that I think is just a hallmark of it is a lengthy opinion. You know, the longer you have to explain why you're coming out where you're coming out, the more suspect it is in my, in my mind. D do you agree or disagree with that? Well, as the author of some lengthy opinions, I, I, I will partially dissent. I, I think, I, I think there's a couple of things. What's the, what's the old saying, Lester, was it Ben Franklin who said that if, that if I'd had more time, I could have made, I could have made it shorter. Right. Um, right. Part 
part of my view is that one of the reasons why we often have lengthy opinions is we just do not have the time under the distress rule. And I, I don't want to throw everything under the stress rule, but I can't emphasize enough how much of our culture is kind of inextricably intertwined with those constitutional deadlines. And so I work hard to try to write relatively short opinions. But there are some cases like, you know, I had one a while back that was this EMC case and it was really, there were numerous claims and like all these briefs and amici and, and, you know, sometimes you just don't have a choice because the, the, right. the downside of not thoroughly addressing everything is that some people, I don't ever want lawyers to walk away from a case thinking that I did not fully address their arguments. And if that means sometimes I err on the side of writing a lengthy opinion, I would rather do that um, than, than, uh, but I mean, I also try to cut as much as I can. Um, and, and, and I'm not letting lawyers off the hook, off the hook here either. I'm not just picking on judges. Yeah. I've, I've always said that the most difficult lawyer skill to learn is when to shut up. Right. And, uh, and I think the last time I argued in front of the Georgia Supreme Court, I, 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 uh, I got a unanimous victory and I'd reserved about half my time to respond, but I could sit there and I could count. I could count, uh, I could count votes with the questions that got asked. And so I didn't even use any of my time, you know, but it pained me because lawyers like to get up, you know, like to get up and talk. And, uh, so I, I, I think all of those are, 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 like I said, maybe sort of little clues, but, but certainly not dispositive. And with a complicated case, you sort of, you owe it to the parties to address all the, all the issues too. And sometimes the law has gotten out of whack. Like, you know, my first dissent that I wrote that I referenced earlier in the termination of parental rights context, you know, we had gone really for a really lengthy period of time with, I think, any critical analysis of our termination of parental rights jurisprudence. And so it took me a while. It was about a 58 page dissent. But I kind of went through and explained the trajectory of how we got to where we were and why it was wrong. And sometimes that takes time. But I, I think your point's well taken. I think, you know, what you want to strive for is to is to put out opinions that, you know, anybody off the street could read in about 15 or 20 minutes or really preferably 10 or 15 minutes and be able to understand it. And so the longer you go on, um, the more, I think, from an accessibility standpoint um, to the people and, and to lawyers, I think it, 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 it's, it's not ideal. I'll just say that. But, you know, you, you know, as a lawyer that there are always exceptions to the rule. But I, I don't I don't know even on this court that that, that I would disagree that, um, you know, generally we don't know. None of us like to get opinions that are 50. But you know, if you got a six, a six consolidated cases, you know, it may be 50 something pages, right. you know. So, you know, anyway, but I, I take your point. I think it's that's well taken. You, you were mentioning that you consider yourself to consider yourself a textualist, which I believe by that you mean you, you look at the literal words of the statute as enacted by the legislature and try to be faithful to that. We see in many opinions uh, the statement often repeated that um, the courts are appellate courts are to presume that the legislature was aware of other laws when it passed a law right. and that it it knew it knew the 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 um 
the consequences of passing a new piece of legislation and took into those other laws that may be in conflict with it at the time it passes uh, a new piece of legislation. Um, I, I'd like to hear your thoughts about that and whether is that true? Is that what appellate courts do? Do they really say, well, the legislature, which, by the way, is only can consist of less than 20, less than 20 percent of the legislators are lawyers. Um, do do appellate courts really think they know what they're saying and knew about the other laws when they pass a new law? It's a fiction. Um, it, it's one it's it's like a canon of construction that we basically we we assume that um, that the deliberative process that I shouldn't say it's a complete fiction. It is it is it is a presumption that we do as a as I think as part of um, the separation of powers. We, we it's a fiction only in the sense that that we're not really delving into and saying, OK, is this really going on? We don't do that. We simply say we presume this is what's going on because I think to do otherwise does get into some separation of powers concerns, but you make within the, the question you're asking is a, is a broader statement words. You know, one of the things you do as a textualist, and this is what the difference between a strict constructionist and a textualist would be. You, you, a textualist doesn't just look at words in isolation. So, you know, if, if you're, you're involved in a case, Robin, where you're dealing with kind of one specific statutory subsection, it may be, that the rest of that statute informs the meaning of that statutory subsection. It may be that there are other statutes that have, you know, if it's very kind of unique, specific language, it may be that there are other similar statutory contexts where that phrase or that, you know, that language has built up a meaning in another context that may or may not be relevant in this context. So whenever you talk about textualism, context, I always like, I think I said this in a concurrence once, in life and law, context is crucial. So we, we don't ever analyze things in isolation. We analyze them in context. We analyze them also in the context of precedent. What what is the Supreme Court maybe done in similar context? How have they interpreted similar language? Um, we may look in some cases, if it's the evidence code, to what the, uh, you know, they even say in, in that the new evidence code, you know, we're to look at the decisions of the 11th the Circuit, setting aside whether they can bind us to that, whether that's a separation of powers issue. We do do it. And the Supreme Court of Georgia said we do it. So we, we'll look at those. And then you've got things like you mentioned, things that I would call presumptions or canons of construction, things we look at. So, you know, it's it's not simply a matter of just saying, you know, um, I'm only going to look at what these words mean in this sentence. Um, it's a matter of interpreting it holistically and and as a whole and even looking sometimes at the statutes which were replaced by the current statute, because when language is taken out, that's different than legislative history, right? Legislative history, as we commonly refer to, it might be somebody on the floor saying, this is what I think the law means. That's a very different animal than statutory history, where the, the predecessor statute said, you know, you've got to send this to the attorney general. And then in the new statute, it doesn't say that you have to send anything to anybody and prior cases say, oh, you got to send it to the attorney general. Well, that was taken out. The fact that it used to be in there and now has been taken out, that may be relevant in how we interpret 
that subsection. So there are a lot of moving pieces to statutory construction. And um, I know you know that. I know Lester knows that. So like I said, I, know, I don't know. The older I get, the more I'm not. I don't mind. I don't. I'm not running away from the, the textualist label, but but I think it's important to educate about what that means. And, you know, Elena Kagan is a textualist. She'll tell you that um, there are different types of textualists and we don't always agree on um, on, uh, you know, what the meaning of of the words that are before us. But I think it's important for a judge to try to operate, like I said, within those parameters that language only goes so far. And so the question is, are you fairly interpreting the words that have been passed um, uh, by the legislature and acted uh, into law? Are you fairly interpreting those words and are you seeking or using neutral principles to try to get to the right answer or the best answer? I love your opinions about that and how you how you see things like that um, and that you named a liberal a liberal textualist, too. Listen, I love Kagan. I'll just tell you, I'm uh, I am unashamedly a um, I don't always agree with Justice Kagan, but man, you want to talk about somebody I'd love to get a beer with. Um, she is, um, I think, uh, if not the smartest person on the court right now, she's one of the smartest people on the court. And she is, if not the best writer on the court right now, she's one of the best writers. I mean, I love her writing style. I really just think she is. And you know what? She she wasn't a judge before she was appointed to the Supreme Court, was not a judge, uh, you know, well, and uh, she's been remarkable. That, that's a whole really. nother conversation that I did not put in our outline about qualifications of a judge, whether they should have struck a jury before. And we've had that conversation, I know, and I know yeah. you have struck a jury have before. Struck, uh, not as many as you and Lester, but 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 I. <laughs> I've, I've, I've handled, uh, I've had, I've, I've gone, I've had several jury trials and many things awful close to that. So sometimes Lester and I talk to each other about that. That's kind of our, our standard bear right there is have you ever struck a jury? That That's right. what we want to know. <clears throat> well, and, and you know, it's funny because like, I, I remember talking to, uh, to one of your uh, colleagues, judge McFadden one time. And, uh, I, you know, I've always said a, a, a Westlaw, uh, any Westlaw search will reveal that I'm the crappiest appellate lawyer in Georgia. Uh, and, uh, but I was talking about, you know, I, I don't really consider myself an appellate lawyer and, and, and judge McFadden said, well, how many appeals have you argued? And I said, I think about 35, you know, or 40, something like that. And he said, he said, that would put you in the top, I don't know, whatever percent or whatever. Uh, yeah. uh, but, uh, it's, it, it, you know, it's, it's interesting to me, uh, you know, when you talk about, and, and some of this thing, some of these things we're talking about, uh, you know, there, there's the question and you touched on this a little bit earlier, but whether they are prescriptive or descriptive. And, and I think we've gotten into this with a lot of, you know, public policy type things, you know, it used to be that, uh, you might use, conservative, we'll say, to describe Barry Goldwater, uh, you know, maybe liberal to describe Ted Kennedy, because you looked at the conglomeration of their political votes and you said they fit into this camp or they fit into, you know, one of the other camps. Uh, and it seems to me with judges and a lot of this with, with talking about what your judicial philosophy is and that kind of thing, uh, you know, when people ask that in confirmation hearings, 
they're kind of asking it like, we want you to prescribe. We want you to tell us what this philosophy is because it's going to prescribe, not describe what your judicial style may be. Right. And uh, uh, as you know, and particularly when you talk about Justice Kagan, uh, who I, I agree has a great writing style that comes across very plain spoken, but not cutesy, you know, but she's an academic. So we have sort of academic influences and they try to uh, characterize that, that sort of thing about a judge. So have we, you know, are we, are we really trying to get judges now? Do you think it's a danger that we try to get judges that have a philosophy that prescribes what the outcome is going to be instead of just sort of describes the process that they go through like you've done with us today? Yeah, I mean, I think that's I think the problem that I've seen and I'm always a little bit amused by the fact, you know, we this is a whole nother podcast about how people decry, you know, what Georgia does and other states do in electing their judges. I always say that I think Georgia has the best system of that because of the nonpartisan nature. And, and we also benefit from having an incredible bar um, that has been vigorous in defending the independence of our uh, state judiciary. But the idea that the federal process is, some, is somehow this, you know, enlightened, uh, apolitical, I mean, you, you can watch both sides, regardless of, you know, going all the way back since I've been following it um, from President Reagan on to all the way through. And you can tell when a lot of these candidates, um, these, these folks that are offering themselves up for public service, just like we have now under the Biden administration, when senators are asking them questions, they don't really, they don't care what their answers are. They're trying to trip them up. They're trying to put them in a box. They're not really interested in letting people, um, they're not really interested in letting people explain um, what their, um, what their views are or, or, or having a nuanced conversation. Um, they just wanna put them in a box and say, this person, I consider this person to be a conservative or Republican judge, and I consider this person to be a liberal or a Democratic judge. And I just think that's unfortunate. I think those Senate judiciary, I mean, like, wouldn't it be nice if we had a Senate Judiciary Committee, regardless of whether it was controlled or headed up by a Republican or a Democrat, that had the kind of conversation that the three of us are having today? I mean, wouldn't that be nice to have a really honest um, frank conversation about, and look, I, I learned from different judges and different approaches to the law. I'm, I've, I've changed, um, um, aspects of, and refined aspects of my jurisprudence. I don't think you should ever be, I don't think you should ever be stagnant. I think you always ought to be critically examining. I like to read articles um, uh, from people who are critics of originalism and textualism, because I want, um, I want to see, I want to hear what other people have to say. I want to always be open to thinking in a deeper way about my job, because I think I owe the people of Georgia that. I think that's a wonderful stance to take judge Dillard. I wish all took that stance. Um, I think it says a lot about you as a judge that you that that you are like that. And that's the position you take. We've taken so much of your time. I want to ask a couple other questions, though, before we go to the final the final final question of, sure. um, that, you know, we're going to ask. But 
we, I mentioned in your introduction uh, that you're a member of the Catholic Church. I know personally that your faith means a lot to you, does to me as well. Can you talk a little bit about putting that in context that, you know, when people hear that a judge is a Catholic or a judge is whatever of a particular faith, everybody all of a sudden gets really nervous, uh, like, oh, goodness, it's going to be a Catholic opinion or something like that. How does your faith influence the way you see your job, the way you perform your job? Yeah, I think it influences certainly the way I I treat people in the workplace. Um, You know, for me, a a central tenet of my faith is that every every human being has inherent dignity and worth. Um, My faith doesn't dictate uh, how I rule in cases. In fact, I've explicitly ruled against the Archdiocese of Atlanta in the case. I've ruled against my own church. I've ruled against my own mayor. I've ruled against a lot of my friends. Um, You know, my faith doesn't dictate, but I think it, it, you know, where things like that, like my faith and my background, I think come into play, um, how I was raised by my mother, a single mother who, um, you know, dedicated her life to social work, um, the values she instilled in me. It comes across, I think, in how I write. Um, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think I have a, 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 it's, it's probably not for everybody, but I think I do have a unique writing voice. And I think, you know, um, when I talk about the idea of, I'll give you one quick example. When I had the Richard Jewell case, um, that was one of the first big cases I had. Um, ultimately we ruled against, uh, Mr. Jewell. He had passed away at that time and it was his estate. And at the very end, I wrote a little concluding paragraph, talking about his heroism and basically said, you know, notwithstanding everything I've just said, I I want to take a moment to talk about the fact that what happened to him um, and what he went through um, wasn't right. And that this person, you know, um, went through something extraordinary and, and saved a lot of lives because of his heroism. And I didn't have to do that. But I felt obliged to do that. This is somebody who had already died, somebody who had saved a lot of lives. Um, and and it, it, at that moment was the right person in the moment. Um, and so I wanted to acknowledge that. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. It didn't impact how I decided the case. But I, I always, you ask me how it influences. It influences in me that when I'm reading briefs and reading cases, I'm not looking at paper. I'm looking at people. You know, even if I don't see them, I recognize that every case involves real people in real lives, the lawyers' lives, the clients' lives, their families. Um, And I don't take that lightly. And so that's, you know, that's to me how my faith, it impacts how I write. It impacts how I treat people. It doesn't have a thing to do with how I decide cases. Um, So I would hope that people that are concerned um, you know, would, would think those attributes are the kind of attributes that they would want in a judge, regardless of whether they called themselves a person of faith or not. I like to say that I'm a practicing Catholic because I need all the practice I can get. <laughs> well, we, uh, we certainly appreciate all your time today and, and uh, Judge Diller and your taking time out, especially I didn't realize when we scheduled this that it was going to be in your distress period. So I apologize about that. No, uh, but no thank worry. you again. But our last question that we ask every every guest, um, and, he won't be the and, first. He won't be the first guest we've left in distress, Robin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
our last question to every guest is what is your definition or your notion of justice as a great question i think we could have an entire podcast about that you know for me um it goes back to some of what i said earlier but i do want to say this i care very deeply about access to justice i think a lot of the cases um that are going on in Georgia state courts and in state courts across the country are pro se people. I don't know that our legal system does the best job of an empowering and uh, enabling people who are socioeconomically disadvantaged um, or don't have the means to really represent themselves or uh, deal, you know, with, with certain important legal matters. I think, courts can and should do a better job of, of how we deal um, with those folks because, you know, a lot of people say the system is really built for lawyers and not clients and not real people. And so I think for me, a lot of justice, I hate to be real practical with this, but that to me is, is kind of something that kind of cries out for as a profession for us to, to continually seek to do better there. Um, I think justice to me um, is going back to, in, in my view, as an appellate judge, justice means um, that a lot of justice should take place, place at the trial level. I think that's really where you have real people, witnesses, cross-examinations, a jury of your peers. Uh, I think you both know, and I say this as an originalist, I am a staunch defender of the right to a jury trial. And in Georgia, I think we have even a more robust right to jury trial than we do at the federal level. We say that the right to jury trial in Georgia is inviolate. Um, and I think Georgia historically has, and I think our founders historically cared very deeply about the right to a jury trial. That to me, a lot of justice is, it may not be sexy to talk about process, but process matters greatly in terms of ensuring justice. Um, and then in terms of my judicial philosophy, once again, I think, um, for me, justice means applying the same approach in every case to every person, regardless of their background, who they are, what their socioeconomic status is, race, gender, you name it. Anything you want to name. I want every person that appears before my court to have confidence that they are going to be given fair treatment and we're going to have deliberate consideration uh, and thoughtful consideration of their appeal. Uh, even if they don't agree with it, the greatest praise anybody can give me is if, if, if somebody walks up off the street, I've had it had a couple of times, not so much clients, but lawyers. And they say, you ruled against me, but I understand why I lost. I don't, you know, I, I you, you explained it and I understand why you, you, you did what you did. And I, I, I want people to have faith in the process that I use as a judge that my court uses to come to our decisions. That, that would be a high compliment indeed to have the loser uh, attorney say, it I understand. A lot, but it does happen every <laughs> once. Well, thank you, Judge Dillard, for being with us today. Again, for our listeners, we've been talking with the Honorable Stephen Dillard, presiding judge of the Georgia Court of Appeals. You can, you can learn more about the Court of Appeals and watch those oral arguments that are online at gaappeals.us. And I encourage everyone who's listening to, to watch one of those oral arguments. Uh, I think you'll learn a lot, and I think they're very, very interesting. 
Thank this you again, Judge Dillard. It's been great. We could have gone on and on, I think. I, uh, I, absolutely. We'll do it another time. And please I was going to say, I think we need part two because we didn't yeah. cover half of what mm -hmm. I wanted to cover. But Well, maybe, please come to the new courthouse. The people of Georgia, this is your courthouse. Please come and see it. It's, it's beautiful. And I think something that all Georgians can be proud of. I agree. Great. All right. Thank you. Thanks, y'all. Take care. Bye. What I have today is not really a uh, news article, uh, although it may subsequently be written up, but <clears throat> it involves a letter uh, that was written by a number of Yale Law School professors uh, in response to the ABA, some, pr some proposed new ABA standards, and they have a lot to say about different uh, ABA standards. I want to concentrate on just one of those, and that is uh, they're responding and complaining uh, about proposed standard uh, 206A1, which requires, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, proposed standard 303B3, which deals with, uh, with curriculum, and it requires law schools to provide substantial opportunities to students for the development of a professional identity. And a professional identity focuses on what it means to be a lawyer and the special obligations that lawyers have to their clients and society. The development of professional identity should involve an intentional exploration of values, guiding principles, and well-being practices considered foundational to successful legal practice. Uh, and so uh, in criticizing this new requirement that the ABA uh, Council on Legal Education wants to impose, these Yale law professors say, uh, first, that to the extent that matters of this sort customarily arise in professional responsibility courses that are already mandated, the requirement's redundant. redundant. But then they go on to say, and I'm quoting this group of law professors, supposedly some of the smartest legal scholars that we have uh, anywhere in the United States, they say, and I quote, law schools do not ordinarily command expertise about the practicalities of law practice and should not be pressured to develop such a field. Uh, I, that just left me sort of speechless. And one of the reasons they, they give for this is that uh, uh, they say we have a diverse student body uh, and uh, some of them do not intend to maintain a successful legal practice. Well, if you don't, you know, there, there are people who go get professional training and yes, they go into something else. I've got an industrial management degree from Georgia Tech and I've never managed an industry in my life. It was a stepping stone to something else. But to say that they shouldn't have trained me in industrial management would be just bizarre. And the idea that we have 12 professors, I think it's 12, I, I'd have to recount there, who, who would actually, you know, and, and as we've talked with Judge Dillard today, you know, words really matter about stuff would say, our law school, we're really not teaching people to practice law, I find just sort of laughable. I so had that's not, my, yeah, I had not heard about that. We probably ought to put that letter up on the, uh, on our website. Um, uh, it's hard. To, it's hard to understand. There's a lot of theory, obviously, in law school, how to think like a lawyer and and all that. But also, 
you're about to step out and represent real life walking around people. You, you better know. You, you better have been taught how to do that. I'm just I was just thinking, like, you know, can you imagine uh, a, a medical school, a, a group of medical school professors uh, writing back and people go to medical school for reasons other than that they want to go be clinical doctors. But as far as the training and the curriculum set, can you imagine them writing back uh, a letter to some medical school counsel saying, we, we, we just don't, we don't, we don't train people to be doctors and we don't see any, uh, we don't see any need and we don't think we should be forced to train doctors. I, I just find it bizarre. Very. Uh, my story is more on the humorous side and, and it's a article I came across uh, and it happened in Michigan, in East Lansing, Michigan, fortunately not a Georgia lawyer. But the title of the article is Lawyer Finds It Very Expensive to Flip the Bird. And we're all doing our Zoom hearings these days. Uh, we talked just, just now with Judge Dillard about uh, online Zoom appellate arguments. And this was an appellate argument in East Lansing, Michigan. And a lawyer who had tried the case below but, at, but was... Uh, just watching the appeal, had another lawyer arguing the appeal, uh, apparently used his middle finger to express himself during the oral arguments, and the judges saw that. Um, you know, he was saying, like, vote for us. We're number one. We're number one with that finger. Uh, the judges took it as an obscene act. Uh, using his middle finger during the oral argument, they confronted him about his behavior, and he claimed he was merely pointing at his broken computer. Uh, the excuse did not fly with the judges, and they said that this lawyer exhibited shameful disrespect to the court and to opposing counsel in his offensive gesture and his dishonest replies to the court's inquiries, and they fined him $3,000. Uh, that lawyer says, I've been a lawyer for 46 years. I've never been accused of inappropriate, unruly, or rude conduct in a courtroom. Uh, but he went ahead and wrote the check. So uh, it doesn't pay to show your disapproval or disagreement with an appellate court on Zoom, certainly not in East Lansing, Michigan. Uh, that's uh, that, that that's that that's very very interesting. Uh, not uh, not the kind of thing I guess that dissents are made of. <laughs> no, but we we were talking before we started taping about all the crazy things we've seen and heard of on Zoom, and uh, that's just another one of them. It's uh, uh, it it uh, it has really uh, in a lot of ways the things that have happened on Zoom in these online court hearings. And, uh, you know, there's a, there, there's a whole set of them out there, but I think one of the things that's been useful for is a lot of the people doing things in these zoom hearings, were just doing these things in court and nobody except the lawyers that are sitting around waiting on their case to be called or, or waiting to argue, you know, in the jury box saw this happen before. And uh, so uh, now uh, the YouTube public is aware of all of the things that uh, uh, made for great lawyer tales uh, for many, many years. <laughs> that's right. That's exactly right. Well, Lester, that's all I have for today. Do you have anything else? I, I don't either. And uh, I guess we will uh, see you next time. Uh, next time we'll see you, see in, you court. in court. Thank you for listening to See You in Court. 
brought to you by the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation and the Georgia Institute of Technology. Please subscribe to this podcast and consider writing a review. You may find related documents to this week's episode on our website, cuincourt.podbean.com. Please send any questions, suggestions, or ideas to cuincourtpodcast at gmail.com. The producer of this podcast is Raz Misher. We thank Noreen Hassan, Associate Professor and Director of Outreach and Community Engagement of the Georgia Institute of Technology School of Literature, Media, and Communication, and the Georgia Tech students who help bring you this podcast. I'm Fred Smith, Executive Director of the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation. You may learn more about the foundation at fairplay.org. On behalf of Robin Fraser clark and Lester Tate, until our next episode, we'll see you in court.